Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Head of Research and Innovation at Western Bulldogs and Victoria University, Sam Robertson. Thanks for tuning in to episode 168 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So, really excited to bring you this episode with, with Sam Robertson. So, I wanted to get Sam on because, basically because of his work with uh, the Western Bulldogs and Victoria University and how he pulls that together in his role as the Head of Innova- Research and Innovation uh, at both establishments. So in this episode, we discuss uh, lots of things, and t- two things that really stand out for me are the, the aspects that we speak about on machine learning and how that can be used in a practical and applied setting, and also Sam's views on RPE, which gets a little bit controversial, but also his views on prediction and the kind of controversy around certain companies claiming or certain people claiming that that can be done for a multitude of things from injury to training load to uh, future perfor- potential future performance. So we discuss all the intricacies and some ethical issues around that kind of thing. So it was a superb episode with Sam and I really appreciate him giving up his time in the first couple of days of his, uh, his holiday over Christmas. So if we look at a and try and fit a model or, or, or some kind of ANOVA or, or even a basic t-test to a, a phenomena where we're trying to look at whether A is related to B, uh, if you're using a traditional statistical approach and there is a non-linear relationship between A and B, your statistical approach will tell you that that is not a good model or it is poor or there is no relationship. Whereas in, in reality, you're actually just limited by the tools that you have at your disposal. So just before we do get into the chat with Sam, I want to say a big thanks to Valve Performance, makers of the Nordboard, Groin Bar and all new Human Track. So if you are interested in learning a bit more about Valve Performance and the, the three, uh, three bits of kit that they offer, head over to valveperformance.com or follow them on Twitter at valveperformance. So also sponsoring this episode today is Forstex. So if you are looking for a force plate hardware and software solution, please check them guys out. They're at forstex.com. And I would also encourage you to check out episode 139 of the podcast. So that's strengthofscience.com forward slash 139. And that is with co-owner of Forstex, Dr. Daniel Cohen. And it's certainly not a sales pitch for Forstex, but it goes into a Daniel goes into a lot of detail with regards to jump monitoring. So if you are one of them guys out there that does or is interested in jump monitoring, wants to know a little bit more about the intricacies around it, um, have a little look at episode 139, and I'm sure that that will give you uh, tons of value. So over to the podcast with Sam. Hope you enjoy, and as always, I would love your feedback. Thanks for tuning in to the Pace Performance Podcast. So this afternoon, I'm delighted to welcome Sam Robertson, who is the Head of Research and Innovation at Western Bulldogs and Victoria University. So welcome to the podcast, Sam. Thanks for having me. It's a, it's a real pleasure to be here. That's a problem, mate. Thanks for uh, thanks for giving up your first day of your holiday to have a little chat. <laughs> no, no problems. 
anyone that doesn't know who you are, just want to give a little, give us a little bit of background on yourself uh, and what you're currently doing. Yeah, so essentially, I, I look after the uh, uh, the partnership that the Victoria University in Australia has with uh, the Western Bulldogs, which is uh, one of the Australian football league clubs. Uh, I've been in that role for about four years. It's it's probably changed a little bit each year, but as as the title would suggest, I essentially look after the uh, the research that we undertake. Um, at the club, uh, in particular, uh, also supervising PhD students and, and other staff that we have there. Uh, and, and of course, it, it, I also work really closely with uh, uh, the management around, um, I, I guess, initially identifying uh, innovative ideas that we can potentially consider for innovation uh, or, or implementation around the club, and then um, start to, to, to roll those out, which is uh, really exciting. I'm, I'm, I'm really fortunate. Nice. So, what did you do before the two the uh, the two roles? I've worked a little bit in in academia, yeah, at other universities in Australia, uh, uh, and I've also worked in applied sports, so uh, in institutes of sport around um, the UK, in Europe, and Australia, um, largely in uh, well, in a variety of sports actually. Um, Golf was actually my main sport before moving into Australian rules football, but but really it's been Australian rules football for the better part of uh, eight or nine years now. Um, but yeah, I guess if you consider um, someone sitting right in the middle of academia and, and applied sport, I guess that would be that would be myself. I've, I've kind of gone back and forward over the years, and, and now again really fortunate to be able to to kind of sit in both camps at the same time, which is great. Nice. So where were you in the UK? I may have asked you this before. Well, again, it's largely largely golf was was my first uh, dalliance into, into the UK. Um, there's a lot of consulting as well, um, some some to institutes of sport, uh, but again, quite multi sport uh, rather than, um, than 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 football or anything. I've never worked in in, uh, in football or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And the the PhD students that you get out of um, of the university are they are they based with you in the club and they've got kind of. The kind of applied research kind of roles. Yeah, essentially, we we put uh, time and effort into a range of areas. We, we're quite when you think of sports science, we're, we're quite broad. We um, we also include things relating to to list management and recruiting and, and scouting in that area. Uh, we we do probably a little bit more with coaching than the typical sports science program as well. Uh, and again, depending on the nature of that project, uh, the student may be uh, you know working at the club every day at, at every training session. Um, you know, for example, if, if one of the students is, is based in GPS, uh, whereas uh, others that, that, that may be working, say, in the analytics space, uh, they may spend you know, a really small proportion of, of, of time at the club. So uh, we, we have about six at the moment that are, that are working across different areas. Um, and, and, yeah, so it, it really does depend on their, their project and their topic and uh, the nature of how they, they plug into the program. Mm-hmm. So when the questions that they are answering for their research for the research purposes that is that coming from is that directed by the club or is it directed by the uni or a bit of both no we we really pride ourselves on on trying to answer questions that the club has identified as a priority and and certainly i work uh fairly closely with the club to identify those areas um that are i guess perceived as a priority and also that are actually worth spending time on that we think we can actually get a, an applied outcome for. So uh, 
having said all that, we, you know, when we do identify the student, we, we also work with them to make sure that the, the topic is reflecting their interests. But, yeah, I mean, primarily the, we're trying to identify questions that the, the club sees as, as beneficial um, in, you know, helping them win more games and win, win more premierships. Mm-hmm. Sweet. So I had a little bit of um, stalking over the last couple of weeks, which is kind of normal for me, and, and listening to your uh, podcast, I think, 2015 or 2016 with uh, with Mladen, and then that led me on to a, a conference pre- uh, presentation that you did pretty more recently. I, uh, was, it, was it in the Far East, Japan, China, something like that? Uh, that's, that's was it in Australia? There's been a few this year, so in China, but uh, I don't think I've been to China this year. But but yeah, there's been a couple in in the Middle East and, and New Zealand and Australia and um, and, and Europe and, uh, and and whatnot. But yeah, I mean, ultimately they they tend to be on a similar um, theme, which I'm sure we'll talk about over the next uh, little while. But around analytics in in sport and. Um, and, and so yeah, it's, it's a growing field. It's a growing topic, and there's a lot of interest in it. Nice, yeah. And I, obviously, I think it was an hour and a half, so it was it was really good. Really enjoyed it. And one thing that I've kind of been exposed to a little bit more than um, than I thought I would is the the kind of pure analytics side of things at Catapult and the, the machine learning side of things, and trying to get um, educated a little bit from our data scientists there, but. Um, and it's it's really intrigued me. I'd love to to get your kind of thoughts on on just on what it is, and then how it is actually applied in in your roles at the university and and the football club. Sure, I mean it's it's. I think as you, as you'll be aware, it's it's an overused term. There's um, there's probably better understanding of what machine learning entails than there, there has been in the past. But essentially, um, you know, in a broad broad sense, we're, we're talking about. Um, Providing a computer an ability to learn without it being programmed. Um, so there's a number of reasons why machine learning um, would be used and, and how it actually works, uh, and particularly why it might be useful in sports. So the idea of, of machine learning, as opposed to say par- parametric statistics, is that it has this ability to to handle nonlinearity and, and dynamic phenomena in that we experience in sport. And I think that most of us um, that have worked or have an understanding of, of elite sport will, will understand that, that these types of phenomena are, are really common. And if we don't account for them in some way with our analysis, then we're either going to make uh, incorrect inferences or we're going to miss something altogether. And so um, – by its very nature, machine learning has the ability to account for this, and, and there's different families of algorithms that, that sit within machine learning, and, and so we have, you know, a, a relationship modelling, we, you know, which essentially we would consider potentially as prediction. Uh, we, we have rule-based approaches. Uh, we have unsupervised uh, analysis approaches like clustering, which which I'm sure some of the listeners are familiar with. There's, so there's, there's different families of, of algorithms. Um, so the element of, of the computer being able to learn without it being explicitly programmed, which um, which is essentially the, the main power of, of machine learning, is not something that uh, we really have we, we really need it for. I suppose in elite sport, we, we don't really have uh, big enough data sets. Um, I mean that's changing, uh, particularly with with the volume of unstructured data we, we're dealing with, particularly um, which is derived from vision and, and to a lesser extent sensors. But the main advantage is is, is mapping that, that that nonlinear phenomena, as, as I've already mentioned, uh, and, and also probably just um, 
some of the, the, the things that are really important from an applied perspective, like um, understanding complexity, um, removing redundancies from data, uh, which of course in turn improves the efficiency of workflow of people working in the field. So, uh, but again, when, when I publish and, and when others publish um, using machine learning in, in the literature, it, it tends to be more um, based around this notion that, hey, have a look at machine learning, have a look at how by uh, understanding this dynamic nature of our data, we can better understand what's happening in sport. So it's more used for that rather than, um, uh, than uh, I guess, reducing um, computational time, which is maybe what it's used for more in, in pure data science. So for someone that is out in the field, and a department, a couple of guys, you know, maybe wearing GPS and collecting a little bit of data here and there. Is that is this something that they should be kind of reading up on and getting into? Or is this something that's kind of far down the line for the, for these kind of guys in the in the field? It's it's a fascinating question. I do get asked this a lot. It, it's <laughs> it's to have an understanding of machine learning is is not particularly difficult, and I, and I would certainly encourage any any of the listeners to, to do so. Uh, as a philosophy of, of, of thinking, it's it's obviously um, entwined with different theoretical frameworks that are available in literature to us, things like uh, dynamical systems, for example, or, or, um, or complexity, um, or any kind of complexity theory. So I think for the people that I have uh, worked with over the years or, 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 or colleagues that are have developed an understanding of this area. It has changed their philosophy and the way that they view uh, data, and the way that they also views uh, they also view uh, well just about every everything they, they undertake in elite sports. So, at a bare minimum, yes, you know, I think it's important for people to understand from a level of, of developing programming skills and, and being able to understand and, and run the analysis it, itself. Uh, I think um, someone coming from a sports science background. Um, it's a difficult um, area to, to address. It's, it's going to take uh, probably years rather than months to, to develop that skill set. Having said that, uh, you know we, we're really fortunate at the Bulldogs. We have some some staff and students that have basically done that. They've come from a sports science background uh, and have developed those those skill sets. Um, and you know that makes them extremely valuable um, people in the field um, to clubs and, and to universities for that matter. Uh, and of course, the other approach is that that. Um, that, that some clubs uh, and, and universities have, have also done is, is actually go the other way and, and bring people straight in from statistics or from data science or computer science and, and bring them into the sporting environment. So, yeah, I guess if, if people out there with a sports science background are, are really seeing a, a need for that in their, their research or their, their, uh, their workflow, it, it's, worth, it's worth doing, but it, it, it's certainly not something you're going to pick up overnight. So the, the, the guys that you've sp- spoken to who have got into it and it's changed their perception on how they look at data, in, in what way? I know this is third hand, but be interesting to know if you do. Yeah, I think it comes back to, to what I mentioned earlier around traditional parametric statistics. So if we look at a and try and fit a model or, or, or some kind of ANOVA or, or even a basic t-test to a, a phenomena where we're trying to look at whether A is related to B, uh, if you're using a traditional statistical approach uh, and there is a non-linear relationship between A and B, 
your statistical approach will tell you that that is not a good model or it is poor or there is no relationship. Whereas in, in reality, you're actually just limited by the tools that you have at your disposal. Uh, and so essentially you're, you're making an inference there is, an, there is no relationship between two variables where in fact there is a relationship, you're just not able to understand it because the tools that you have at your disposal are, are, are too crude to, to be able to understand that. So as you can imagine, as a, as a way of thinking, um, that completely transforms the way that you just about look at every data set because uh, you go from a situation where you're um, discarding information um, or discarding data that, that may actually be really important. And so you, you, I've seen it you know, a number of times with people, they, their, their default position changes from one of, of linearity to, to non-linearity straight away. And, of course, that's really useful because it helps you to understand that, that um, all these different concepts that we talk about a lot in, in sport now, like the, the concept of individual differences, and both, both from a, an inter-individual and an intra-individual perspective, um, yeah, and also how, how different athletes will, will respond to in, in different ways to different stimuli. So, yeah, it, it does transform the way people start to think and, um, you know, and I'm sure we'll talk about later on just some examples of that in the literature, including uh, some that, that, that my group's published around, um, you know, for example, Session RPE, how Session RPE um, will, will, change in a, will, will change completely based on, um, you know, within individual and inter-individual differences around um, around what's recorded in the GPS, for example. Mm-hmm. Well, that was my next question. Giving us some examples of how this this kind of um, use of it can be used actually in the in the field, not just in the research. Yeah, I think. Which I know is hard for you. <laughs> yeah, I, I think certainly machine learning uh, has particularly been used in the literature to date around prediction. I think prediction is a, is a concept that, that people tend to have a, uh, I guess it's a sexy question, I think, for people. It, you know, people have, have wanted to predict things um, forever, really. And, and so almost always machine learning will provide a better prediction than a, a linear a statistical approach, almost always. And that's because it's able to account for the, that, that non-linearity. Um, and so I think... Uh, you know, if you can think about any any kind of prediction based problem that people are facing in sport, um, then then it could be of use. And I guess injury is the main one that comes to mind. Um, and there's there's been a number of attempts to do that in the literature, and, we, and we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about this uh, at some point as well. Um, but you know, I've already mentioned the session RPE um, as um, as another example. But I suppose the the other uh, predominant one that you, you'll see in the literature and, and, and in the field for that matter um, is, is predicting outcomes uh, in particular of, of either contests or, or matches or uh, in, in elite sport, in particular in, in team sports. So, uh, you know, I, I think anything where you can consider there needing to be predicting something, um, whether it's an outcome, an injury or, or uh, you know, a, the best kind of um, team lineup for a match, anything like that can be can be addressed um, using using machine learning. So while we're on the um, the topic of RPE, and you brought up a couple of times in that conference presentation that I uh, that I mentioned, it came up. I think in one of the questions at the end about RPE, maybe, and um, your skepticism around it is that a, a good word? Skepticism. Um, do you just want to explain why? Yeah, I mean, I guess. I, I am skeptical by nature about a, a number of things. Probably, <laughs> probably more for session RPE. It's it's less around 
my skepticism around it as a as a, a measure and more around myself and, and probably others as well um, holding us to account in sports science of being uh, of well holding us to account of, of being better and I think uh, you know without being overly critical of, of, of work that gets done in the field I, I think session RPE is um, is something that certainly for lower levels of sport where there's with no other measures available or it's um, or, or you know particularly no other cost effective measures it's, it's really useful but I, I think as an industry we need to be moving beyond this and we certainly have tools at our disposal in you know sub elite or elite sport which which mean that this is not really something that that we should continue to use um, we, we have far better measures available this is a very crude measure um, yes it's it's there's the literature of support it. Um, we've used it for a long time, but things have moved very, very quickly with respect to technology, with respect to our understanding of, of how people respond to, to exercise and, and training. Um, and, and yet, you know, and, and there's, there's plenty of research out there that's, you know, really questioning its validity and reliability as well. So uh, I guess it's more around uh, holding us account in, in sports science to, to do things better. Uh, and because we, we have the ability to do it, um, and, and I, I don't think we should look back at, at, at things that we did 10, 20, 30 years ago as necessarily being wrong. We just need to progress and we need to continue to, to, um, to aim high and, and do things better. Um, and I guess the last thing around session RPE is I certainly haven't met a, a team sport athlete that, that likes providing it every day. And so, you know, I think a lot of what we do in, you know, in the, particularly at the, at the Bulldogs as well is, um, is a real emphasis on not just the measurement properties and the measurement quality of, of things that we collect around validity and reliability, for example, but also this, this concept of feasibility, um, you know, how much does it, does it cost? How long does it take to, to obtain a certain measure? Um, and then more importantly of, of all, really, um, does the athlete, you know, in, engage in it? Uh, do, they, do they buy into it? Do they like providing that? Um, or is there a burden associated with them providing it? And, um, and, and we feel there's better ways of, of collecting that. Um, without placing unnecessary burden on the athlete. So you, so you still do collect it at, at the Bulldogs? No, we don't. No. Okay. When did that? Was there a turning point where you thought this isn't worth it, or has you never? It's never been on the cards at the Bulldogs. It, it's uh, yeah, and it's a paper I I wrote um, with some some really good colleagues from from Deakin University a couple of years ago on this. Um, Around a, around twenty different items that that really can be used as a framework to determine whether a measure, or not not whether a measure is is, is high quality or not, or what, but to determine the quality of, of a particular measure. And as I just mentioned, feasibility was something that we added to that to that framework, which traditionally hasn't been considered in, in I guess measurement theory. And when we hold up things that we collect, particularly in a routine sense in applied sport. Uh, that particular measure didn't didn't hold up to scrutiny. It, it wasn't providing us um, useful information from a prediction perspective. It wasn't uh, really uh, strongly associated with a lot of our, our other uh, load measures. Uh, the athletes didn't like providing it, uh, and so when you, you come to that that point, um, yeah, it's very difficult to uh, provide an argument about why you should continue to to maintain that uh, maintain collecting it. Uh, and, and certainly, you know, I'm only speaking for us at the Bulldogs. I, I, I can't, and I, I, I want to stress that I'm not saying it's, 
we're not, we're, it's not going to be the, the pick on session RPE session, uh, but we, we certainly, <laughs> um, for us, that was that's an example of, of one where we felt we could get, get better information um, elsewhere in a, a non-invasive sense that was not burden, burdening staff or, or the athlete. And I, I won't go into detail with, with what those measures were, but that's just an example of, of, uh, of one. And, and it wasn't the only one. Um, so that's something we regularly revisit every, um, not every year, but, but probably even more regularly than that. And I think it's really healthy um, practice for, for any sporting organisation. Again, that leads me on to what I was going to say was obviously that, that applies to you guys, the Bulldogs, but how would someone, lesser organisation, less you know resources, is that kind of um, in-depth look uh, doable? And, and what's the process you'd go about, you'd, you would uh, undertake to, to go about what you think is useful in your environment? Again, um, short of turning this into shameless self-promotion, <laughs> I think <laughs> I would get a hold of, uh, of that, that paper I referred to earlier and, I, and maybe we can drop that into the end of, um, cool. of, of the, the podcast with, um, I'll, I'll dig it up as we talk, um, the title. But essentially that, that was the, the motivation for undertaking that paper, that we could provide a framework for practitioners to, to go through uh, particular measures and, and basically choose which one holds up best to scrutiny and again if if the practitioner or the the sporting organization or environment is is not equipped um to systematically evaluate the measures then that's fine i mean it it can certainly be done based on the existing literature um but again we'd see that uh, as a uh, you know for example that there might be four or five load measures that you're collecting you you might want to reduce that um and, and so this this um this tool or framework can be used to to precisely do that. It's um, it's not just based around data redundancy about uh, removing inefficiencies, but that that's that's one part of it. It's also about choosing the, the best measure that's going to provide you with the most precise and informative information that, that can help you make better decisions with your athletes. Um, and so, of course, if you're you know improving your efficiencies and um, improving your accuracy and precision of what you're doing, that that's what it's all about. So, I would encourage practitioners to um, to get a hold of, of that because that's precisely why we we, we did the paper. Mm-hmm. Perfect. No, don't don't be uh, don't be hiding yourself by the the, the self promotion. By the way, <laughs> I love it. It's good. Um, so, just back to machine learning uh, as a whole. If 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 someone wants to get some more information, uh, look for resources where they can learn a little bit more. Is there anything out there that you would uh, point them to? Yeah, there are. It's 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 probably dangerous to to open up your. Uh, your Google browser and and, and um, enter the search <laughs> to you may you get lost very quickly. Uh, yeah, you know I think most of the the listeners will be familiar with um, <clears throat> excuse me with with Coursera uh, and, and other open source um, university course providers out there. And there's some some very very good machine learning courses out there, particularly um, made available by some of the, you know the United States. Um, universities again i would suggest that uh, proceed with caution some of them are extremely theoretical and that's 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 going to be useful for some for some listeners and, and not for others uh textbooks is is something that um there's probably i'll, I'll probably be less inclined to recommend a single text out there I, I know um that there are some available that tend to focus more on 
particular analysis platforms as opposed to machine learning as a concept. Uh, so, for example, uh, if, if there's some R users or SAS users or Python users in, in the audience, uh, I think they will be able to find textbooks that are available specifically uh, based around um, implementing machine learning using any of those platforms. But as far as a, um, a generic um, text, I'm sure they are out there. I, I, I may not be. Uh, in fact, I'm not, I'm not aware of them. But there's certainly a lot of resources out there. But I would encourage um, people to, to, to probably try a few and, and find which one resonates best with them. But, yeah, Coursera uh, is out there. And, and again, um, depending on your analysis platform of choice, there certainly will be one um out there for you, and, and except probably you know SPSS and, and these types of um, uh, tool. Uh, again, I may be wrong, but uh, essentially, um, SAS, Python, are uh, these types of um, tools uh, are probably those that I'd, I'd recommend people looking at uh, at least initially. So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Sam. I hope you enjoyed part one. In part two, more on prediction uh, and the intricacies around that, and maybe some problems with. Um, how that's viewed and maybe how it should be viewed, uh, which is a really interesting chat from a, from a personal point of view. So I hope you uh, you see the value in that as well. So just want to say a big thanks uh, to a third sponsor of the podcast today, and that is Fatigue Science. So Fatigue Science offer a sleep tracker called the ReadyBand, and they were put in touch with me with the, from the guys at the Seattle Seahawks who use their bit of tech. So the, the main benefits around the ReadyBand is their it's usability in a, in a team setting, so unlike a Fitbit. Um, so as players wear the ReadyBand, they enter the facility and all their data is then uh, fired out via Bluetooth to the kind of main console, which is then able to be um, downloaded and viewed um, by the coach, by an SNC coach, sports scientist, whatever that may be, um, for easy kind of uh, acting on that data um, instantly. So if you are interested in getting to know a little bit more about Fatigue Science, if you head over to fatiguescience.com or follow me on Twitter at Fatigue Science, uh, there's a bunch more information uh, on the website and on their Twitter feed. So over to part two with Sam. Hope you enjoy and as always, would love your feedback. Just moving on to one of the things that you mentioned uh, during the, the chat around machine learning was prediction. And that's something that always interests me when you, when you see that that term and how it's linked to uh, injury prediction, future performance, training load, all these kind of things that you see regularly. Just want to talk to us a little bit about the um, the dangers of reading about you know people or companies that may, again, not bashing anyone out there that is, um, but uh, puts it out there that they can predict certain things. What are the kind of overarching issues about using that that term? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think there's a number. <laughs> so it depends on how long we've got. But I think uh, <laughs> I think this concept of prediction, my initial concern with prediction used in a sporting context is that we're actually not considering problems in their true sense. And what I mean by that is uh, – most problems that we face, and certainly that, that I've faced in my career to date in sport, are not prediction-based problems. We don't operate in, in that, that term. I mean, when we think of prediction, we're, we're thinking about, um, particularly for, for Matt Jack, and we think about gambling, we, we think about wanting to know who's going to win at a given point of, of, a, of a match or, or, or a competition. And so when we talk about injury, for example, I, I don't think it's a prediction question. I, I think we talked about earlier around um, 
certain machine learning algorithms and certain families of algorithms, you know, such as rule-based approaches or, or clustering or, or decision trees, for example. Um, these types of, of workflows uh, and, um, and different ways of addressing problems are actually probably more entwined with, with an injury than, than prediction is. Uh, and I won't go into detail about that now, but, but if we come back to prediction, uh, some of the, the issues around that is, is we can't operate, operationalise a prediction. Um, based on the measures that we that we collect. So, for example, if we are trying to predict someone and being injured or whether they're going to be injured or not, based on training load measures, uh, we don't actually have those training load measures until the end of a of a training session or at the start of a training session. So, if we're trying to implement a prediction, that means we are running an algorithm at the or the, the computer's running a, um, some kind of output for us that's going to uh, dictate or tell us whether someone's going to be injured or the likelihood of someone being injured before or after a training session. Whereas in reality, we actually want that probably real time if we're going to look at it as a prediction um, problem. We want to have that during a session. Um, and, of course, that, that can be done, but it is more computationally complex and it requires someone being able to act on that. And we know, of course, that most injuries, we, we don't really have that window of time to, to look look in and, and, and actually um stop and intervene in a, in a session or, or a match and stop that injury from occurring. So it's not operational. Um, we can't operationalize it. Uh, and again, of course, it's also based on this premise that, that, that team sport athletes are injured based on, on overuse or, or overload. And, and I don't think that's the case most of the time. I mean, if we look at the volume that, that individual, um, particularly endurance sport athletes, um, train week to week, day to day, month to month. It's astronomically higher than, than team sport athletes, particularly in some of these other other sports that have very very busy schedules, like football, basketball, for example, where where training in season just does not constitute a meaningful um, proportion of, of the load. Most of the load comes from from matches. Uh, I guess the other consideration around prediction that is is so problematic is that i don't think it's it's well understood certainly by practitioners and certainly by coaches so for example i think most people consider prediction as a, a, in, a in a frequentist sense so in the sense that um, when i run an algorithm whether it's a machine learning approach or not it's going to predict that i'm going to be injured yes or no uh, the reality is it needs to be considered in, in a bayesian sense in it's going to provide some kind of probability of injury. And again, how we operationalise someone being predicted as being injured 30% versus 50%, I don't know. I don't know. It's a classic risk versus reward type problem. There's very little literature on, on that topic in, in sports science in, in, or in sports coaching, for example. Uh, and so how we actually go and operationalise that is, um, is, is not clear to me at all. I'm not sure how it would change my practice based on um, on, a, on an output saying a person was 30% likely of injured, being injured versus 50%. And then, of course, we, we, have, we have these other considerations that like, like the confidence interval. Um, you know, every prediction will have a confidence interval and, uh, and how a, a small confidence interval will change our interpretation versus a large interval is, is not particularly clear to me either. Uh, there's very little literature on that. Uh, and so, again, um, I think it's, it's, it's problematic in that sense and, and if, we, if, if we want to continue while I'm on a roll, we're also <laughs> making, a, making a, an assessment that it's a classic um, availability heuristic in the sense that we only use 
information that we currently collect in our predictions. And so it's entirely likely that there's a number of different things that are going to contribute to our injury that we aren't collecting in, t- in team sport environments or, uh, or even in a university uh, environment. And so, again, we, we place a higher emphasis on, on a certain variable because it's available for us so we can collect it. Uh, and so that's, that's problematic as well. And, and so, you know, I talk a lot about in, in conferences and, and the likes that um, machine learning can help us to overcome bias, but it's not entirely true because it's still prone to bias by the inputs that we put into our algorithms. And so we still select those at this point in, in time, certainly in, in an elite sport or, or team sport. And so there is still bias in the in, in the sense that we we select those those items that are, are going to be important. If we haven't included a, 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 a variable in, a, in our model, then of course we can't we can't emphasize its importance. Uh, and so that, that's that's problematic in a sense. But um, you know, it reminds me of a really good quote from I think from from John Keats, which is you know well over 150 years old now, but around this concept of uncertainty. And I think that that's partly why we, we get attracted to prediction so much that um, that we, we aren't particularly comfortable with being uncertain on, on things and we, we don't particularly understand uncertainty as well or, or understand confidence intervals. Um, and so uh, when we look at these, this concept of a prediction, I think all those things combined that, that I've just talked about for the last five minutes, um, you know, combine to, to make it a really dangerous topic, a, a really... Um, yeah, and a really dangerous path to go down for, for a lot of clubs. And I've seen a lot of people spend a lot of time on it as a, as a concept and, and probably lead to, to, to very limited results. So again, that was, I've just written down um, trends of when injuries are going to occur, question mark. Because like you say, there's people out there who are spending a hell of a lot of time looking at this kind of thing. Are they, are they wasting their time? I think there's two... There's two ways that we will <clears throat> move towards injury prediction, improving two, two, two things. Improving our analysis, which we're doing, and we're talking about that now. Um, I think we're doing some, re- some really cool analysis in sports science. We've really adopted a lot of what we see in, in data science. The second is far more important, and that's the quality of, of data that we put into our, uh, and, and probably the volume as well, quality and volume of, of data. And it's just not there. I mean, we've t- we've talked about session RPE already earlier. Uh, if if you think that session RPE, if you actually stand back and, and consider session RPE and think, and I'm not, I'm not suggesting that people are doing this, but let's say, for example, that you stand back and consider and, and, and truly believe that, that that's going to tell you whether an athlete's going to be injured or not, yeah, you're, you're wasting your time, in, in, in my opinion. And certainly, I think... Not just my opinion. There's certainly research out there that would suggest that's the case as well. So we're limited at the moment by the quality of our data, and we know that as sensors become better, we know that as um, that will that will produce more data for us. We know that as our understanding of vision and unstructured data, and we were able to to understand vision. Um, particularly around pose and, and technique and, and athlete movement uh, improves and that will help us to understand why an athlete gets injured, certainly. And certainly integrating those two data sources will, will help us. Um, so there's, there's that side of things as well. As, as technology improves, that will help us move towards um, understanding injury. And there's probably a third. I know I said there was two, but the third is actual um, is, is computational ability. Uh, we need to be able to do these things 
live in real time. I mean, that's that's when athletes become injured in the middle of training or in the middle of, of competition. And so until we have computers that are able to process, you know, for example, in Australia with football, uh, vision and sensor data potentially on multiple sites around the body in real time and provide feedback to a, a practitioner, you know, we're not going to get anywhere meaningful in that area. So I'm not saying we give up on it. I'm just saying we need to wait for the technology and, and the, the computational ability because at the moment, without that, we, we are, yeah, wasting our time. So what bits of tech um, are close to where we need to be? Not close, but closer than the rest? Is it um, like the sensors that you mentioned? How How confident are you that that will happen? Like, are we looking at... 10 years on the line, 20 years on the line, or is that gap a lot smaller? Well, it's it's really difficult to, to answer that because it depends on on the commercial implications, I suppose. Because the reality is uh, is most of the technology is available now, and, and we know this area, particularly the really exciting area of nanobionics is, is moving that area forward very rapidly in, in other disciplines like health and, and, and medicine, for example. So, you know, I'm not suggesting that the technology, the wearable technologies that we know now will will disappear. I, I think they'll become more refined. Um, if we consider our typical wearable sensor, um, they'll become smaller. Uh, they'll, they'll have better battery life. They'll be, they'll be able to um, be integrated with, um, with, with, with clothing, which we're seeing already. But, but really basic issues like laundering will, will become um, more solvable. Uh, again, um, and ultimately that will lead to, to you know nanobionics probably becoming more more commonplace in in, in sport. Uh, again, and then integrating that with vision and uh, which I mentioned a couple of times now will will, will be the other um, you know really valuable area I'm I'm sure in in not just um, prediction of injury but 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 also you know automation of a number of different processes that we see in um, in elite sport. Um, particularly around you know the tactical area or the, the skill based area as well. So uh, yeah, I guess it depends on just how quickly um, companies can leverage that technology and and sense the commercial opportunity. Mm-hmm. So what do you mean by nanobionics? Well, essentially, we're talking about um, moving beyond smart clothing and actually integrating this into um, very very well. It, very, very lightweight sensors um, and very things that basically are, are able to be integrated on, onto, into the body. I mean, I'm not, sure, I'm not talking necessarily about um, under the skin <laughs> per se, but again, that's probably somewhere this, this area will, will go, I would imagine. Um, but in particular, we're just talking about um, electrical um, interactions in a biological system. That, that's essentially what we're talking about when, we, when we're referring to, to nanobionics. So um, largely at the moment, it's, it, from what I've read anyway, in particular in, in these health and medicine areas, it's, it's more based around physiological function than, um, than, say, movement kinematics or movement kinetics, for example. Uh, but certainly in the health and medicine area, we're talking about um, you know, measuring you know real vital signs, vital functions of, of the human body, like like heart rate and, and other um, physiological functions and, and breathing rates and things like that. Mm-hmm. 
Nice. Well, I'm just going to um, I'm going to bring it to the end, uh, but I, I thank you for your time. But I've just got one more thing to ask you, or two more things to ask you, and I'm not quite sure whether I actually um, put it on the uh, on the correspondence that we had prior to the the episode. But have you got uh, two books that have been most influential in your career so far? And I feel like I'm dropping this on you from a great height. But is there anything, any two that come to mind straight away? Uh, let's come back to that one. I'll give it a little bit of thought. There's a really well. There's one I'll think of off the top of my my head, and um, as he may have picked up through the, I guess the, the conversation, um, I'm I'm quite interested as a as a as an area in like um, not overcoming our biases as, as as humans in our decision making process, but reducing that bias through through machine learning and just objective um, moving towards objective uh, manner of thinking. So. Um, Listeners out there will be will, from, will be familiar with a number of authors that have published in that space, and, and you've probably had um, you've probably had um, people on the show before that have recommended really popular books in that area. You know, by by Taleb, Kahneman, these types of guys. Um, mm-hmm. I actually really like um, some something by a guy called Don Norman, um, who was heavily involved in. Uh, in, in Apple in the early days, uh, I, I can't recall exactly um, his his initial role at that company, but but certainly um, he he's written some really good books on this topic of of how we harness technology uh, and again how we use it to, to overcome or at least reduce our, our bias in decision making. So I'd certainly encourage uh, people to get a hold of some of his books. Um, he's essentially uh, in computer science; that's it's his field of, of research. Mm-hmm. Sweet. I knew I dropped that on you. I knew I should remember to uh, find that across you. That's absolutely fine. That's 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 cool. That's the, the other. Yeah, it's it's that's, that's fine. Probably I haven't given titles. Probably the other other person, uh, the other couple of people, I would suggest that um, that listeners get a hold of would be both of us. Both of these these guys are no longer with us, unfortunately, and we probably we probably miss them in science as a discipline, but. Um, you know, anything by Carl Sagan, of course, even though he's he's generally known for his work in astronomy. Um, uh, you know, again, his his way of thinking is, um, is 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 extremely impressive. And again, from a, a skeptical perspective, I think um, anything from 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 Christopher Hitchens, again, no longer with us, but um, you know, has written some some fantastic work on, um, I guess ciphering out um, uh, some of the, the poor science or the pseudoscience that we um, are, are really inundated with with these days more so than ever so they're probably two guys I would say also to get a get a hold of there's some great Christopher Hitchens videos out there as well on YouTube absolutely <laughs> priceless I was definitely you recommend having a look at those yeah, they're, they're oh, extremely absolutely. fantastic absolutely brilliant but yeah thank you very much for uh, giving it me time and um, and well giving it the first day of your holiday more importantly um, but any, where, where can people uh, get more information on your research, you personally, Twitter, ResearchGate, the two best places? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, ResearchGate is, is certainly the, the way. Uh, I know there's a number of different vehicles out there now, but we certainly, um, in, in Australia, I think as a, as a university system, we, we use that quite heavily. And again, yeah, I'll, I'll generally uh, tweet at anything we're doing any, anyway. Again, a, a bit of shameless self-promotion, but that's, that's what that vehicle's right. for. So, yeah, uh, absolutely. They're the two best um, sources. Perfect. I'll put links on the site so people can uh, get that easily. But yeah, have a good holiday, mate. Really appreciate you uh, giving up your time and we'll we'll chat soon. No, thanks very much for, for having me. It's been a pleasure. Pleasure, mate. Thanks a lot. 
Thanks for tuning in to episode 168 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So just before I let you go, if you are enjoying the content that's been put out over the last couple of years on the Pacey Performance Podcast, please do take the time to subscribe on your chosen podcast player. And if you are one of the many people that listen via the iTunes app, if you scroll to the bottom uh, of the Pacey Performance uh, page on the on your on your iPhone, it gives it tells you that you can give a little rating. You don't have to give a review, but a rating would go down an absolute treat, uh, just so other people can e- more easily discover the podcast and the guests that are uh, showcasing their expertise every week on the podcast. So really appreciate that if you could do it um, and. Um, any any feedback that comes my way positive or negative is always um, always massively appreciated so thank you very much for your support and i'll speak to you soon